morning, everybody. And first of all, just to say thank you so much for being here this morning. I'm aware that some people have traveled quite far to be here, so we really appreciate you doing that. Uh, and we hope the seminar will be useful for you. Um, my name's Catherine Allen. I am a partner in MHC's public regulatory and investigations team. It's a number of uh, my colleagues from the team here this morning, and you might have met them over breakfast. Um, what we hope to discuss today are um, issues which keep coming across our desks from our public sector clients around data protection. And one of the issues which is coming up most commonly is the question of data sharing. And that could be data sharing between public sector bodies, or it could be data sharing between the public sector and the private sector. <clears throat> It could be the sharing of small amounts of data in relation to individuals, or it could be sharing large amounts of personal data uh, to do with uh, more complex issues. And the number of questions and queries we get about all of that type of data sharing prompted us to organize this event this morning. So what we hope to cover during the presentation is to talk to uh, some general principles of public, data, public sector data sharing and some recent cases of interest. We're then going to move on to talking about the Data Protection Commission's guidance note on public sector data sharing. And finally, we're going to talk about the Data Sharing and Governance Act 2019. Now, if you are using Slido, you will see that there will be a resources section in Slido, and on that resources section, we have put some uh, information which may, may be useful to you during the session. So we've put up things like a copy of the guidance note, a copy of the Data Sharing Act, a copy of Section 38 of the Data Protection Act, and so on. So feel free to refer to them during the session. <clears throat> We're also going to use Slido for questions, Q&A at the end of the session this morning. So do feel free to post your questions on Slido during the event and we'll take some or all of those questions at the end of the event. Uh, to get us all used to using Slido, we've actually uh, put together a really simple poll. We wanted to get some sense of our audience and uh, what their uh, understanding of the Data Sharing and Governance Act 2018 is. And um, I think we have a slide with the poll on it. Hoping we do. Yes, that's it. So if you're using Slido, you'll be able to go to the poll section. And there are three uh, options to answer the question. How much do you know about the Data Sharing and Governance Act 2019? It's not the Data Protection Act, the Data Sharing and Governance Act 2019. I know a lot about the Act, in which case, please put up your hand and you can take all of the difficult questions. <laughs> I know something about the Act or I know nothing at all about the Act. We're not going to reveal the results of the poll straight away. We're going to save those for an exciting reveal later in the seminar. But please do vote uh, if you can. So finally, just a word about the slides, that we will have slides up during the event. And they are quite minimalistic slides, because how we propose to run the latter half of the event is a series of questions from me to Robert and John. So all you will see on the slides are the, the, the questions themselves. After the event, we will circulate a more detailed version of the slides, which will contain bullet points of the replies that were given to the answers. So hopefully that will save you some furious scribbling throughout the event, although of course, do feel free to take notes as we go along. <coughs> okay, so. Turning more to the substance of the uh, 
what we would like to talk about this morning, and that's the question of public data sharing. And of course, it's the case that the safe and effective delivery of public service uh, requires the collection, processing, sharing, and retention of significant volumes of personal data and special category personal data. <clears throat> and it wouldn't be possible to deliver services if, if that weren't done. But of course, public sector organisations are subject to the same data protection law requirements as private sector organisations. And even in some circumstances, they are subject to more restrictive requirements than private sector organisations. Not being able to rely on the legitimate interest ground as a ground for processing is an example, and I, I am going to talk about that a little bit more later on. <clears throat> but I suppose an additional constraint for public sector bodies is that many are, have stretched resources and won't necessarily, the, the, the data protection team or the DPO or whatever person is charged with dealing with data protection won't necessarily have had the same investment of resources as maybe a private sector organization will have. And also very, very many public sector bodies are dealing with personal data that they have built up over very many years, data that was uh, perhaps collected for one purpose, they're now being requested to share that personal data with another public sector authority for another purpose. Perhaps that purpose wasn't made clear to data subjects at the time of collection. Perhaps your statutory functions aren't that clear around what you can do with this personal data. So all of those issues are coming up for public sector bodies at the moment. I suppose what we might just touch on first is, well, what is the definition of public authority? Because this is the term that comes up in the GDPR. Now, actually, there's a slightly different term and a different definition of a public body under the Data Sharing and Governance Act. But just for the purposes of the GDPR and data, the Data Protection Act 2018, the definition of public authority is to be found in the 2018 Act. And it defines a public authority as including a Department of State, a regional assembly, a local authority, the ODCE, the Irish Auditing and Accounting Supervisory Authority, any organisation established by or under an enactment other than the Companies Act 2014, certain schools, organisations that have a Section 38 arrangement with the Health Services Executive, that's all of the voluntary hospitals, and then on Garda Síochána. So as you can see from that, the definition of public authority is really broad ranging, and that does then have an impact on how those public authorities can carry out their functions in relation to data sharing under data protection law. <clears throat> now, there have been some recent and perhaps slightly less recent examples of scrutiny of data sharing by public sector bodies, and I suppose these are probably in the mind of a lot of our clients. The first example I'm going to talk about is the Barra case, which is going back a little bit now. It's dates from 2014. Uh, the judgment is actually delivered early 2015. And this was a case which uh, was um, a, a reference from the uh, Romanian Court of Appeal to the, European, uh, to the Court of Justice of the European Union. <clears throat> and essentially what was happening in Barra was that the National Tax Authority in Romania was transferring personal data to the National Health Insurance Authority. And the National Health Insurance Authority maintained the, the national health insurance system and determined whether a person was an insured person for the purposes of receiving certain benefits. And 
Miss Barra was a self-employed individual who had been providing information to the National Tax Authority, of course, as part of her tax return. <clears throat> but then suddenly she got a demand from the National Health Insurance Authority for back payment of insurance credits, essentially, presumably something like PRSI or something like that, which she hadn't paid. And Miss Barrow was rather upset because she hadn't provided any information regarding her income to the National Health Insurance Authority, and she was mystified as to how the National Health Insurance Authority knew what her income was, so as to be able to make this demand for her from her. And of course, what had been happening was this information was being transferred to the Health Insurance Authority by the Tax Authority. The problem with that was that the transfer was being done on the basis of a, a, a protocol, an administrative measure. There was no legislative basis for the transfer. And also, there was no transparency in terms of that data sharing. So the National, Health, uh, National Tax Authority was not telling people who made tax returns, we will also share your information with other public sector organizations. And Ms. Barrett claimed that this was a breach of the directive which predated GDPR. And the Court of Justice agreed with Ms. Barra. It, uh, it, it acknowledged that certain rights, certain data subject rights under the directive could be restricted for various different interests, such as the right to transparency, the right to information, but that restriction had to be on a legislative basis and it could not be on the basis of a protocol or an administrative measure. So on that basis, um, the court in Barra said that the transfer of the information from the National Tax Authority to the National Health Insurance Authority was impermissible from a data protection perspective. More recently, and coming back to our own jurisdiction, we see the same themes coming up, the lack of legal basis and the lack of transparency coming up in the recent Data Protection Commission investigation into the public services card. Now, uh, this has been in the media even again this week, but I'd like to go back a little bit in time to August of last year when the DPC uh, issued or published its findings on the public services card. And the, I suppose the reason that the DPC decided to look into the, the public services card was it, it was aware that the state uses the public services card to make thousands of decisions every day, not only in the field of social uh, welfare, so the, the, the card is issued by the Department of Empl Employment Affairs and Social Protection, but it's also used by very many other state agencies to make decisions, even around things like getting a passport, or used in the process of getting a passport. Um, so the DPC felt that this raised significant issues from a, a data protection perspective and com commenced an investigation. And in particular, the DPC targeted the two issues that we saw coming up in Barra, the question of a legal basis for the transfer and the question of transparency, how much information was being given to uh, data subjects about this transfer. And the report of the DPC made eight findings uh, in relation to the PSC. Three of those findings relate to the legal basis point, and five of the findings relate to the transparency issues. And seven of the eight findings are adverse to the position of the department. So the, uh, the DPC accepted that the department had a valid legal basis for the use of the public services card for the administration of the social protection system, if you like. 
but it disagreed that there was a valid legal basis for the use by other public service bodies of that information of the public, in the, uh, the public services card system. <clears throat> it also made the finding that um, the retention period for which all of the identification documentation for the, in order to obtain the card was being retained, it, uh, the DPC found that was too long. And it also found um, that the lack of information, or there was a, 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 um, a requirement that the uh, department provide information to data subjects about what uses it was making of this information which it was collected, and that that obligation had not been met. And the department, or sorry, the DPC then identified a number of measures which it required the department to take in order to remedy all of these issues. I suppose what's makes the case even more interesting is that the Minister for Employment Affairs and Social Protection and the Minister for Finance it then in September 2019 issued a statement and the statement completely disagreed with the findings of the DPC. So the, the department or the minister said we have taken the advice of the Attorney General, we think there is a valid legal basis for what we're doing, we think the retention of the data is perfectly legitimate and we don't don't believe there's any breach of the obligation of transparency. So really in direct contravention <clears throat> of the findings of the DPC. And interestingly, the department earlier in 2019 had commissioned a survey of users of the public services card. And the statistics point said that 96% of the people surveyed were either fairly satisfied or very satisfied with the use of the public services card. And then in relation to three other questions, between 77% and 87% of the people surveyed were perfectly happy with the sharing of the personal data, perfectly happy with the retention of their identification documents and felt they had been given enough information about the use of the card. So I think what that demonstrates is very often there is a, a, a dichotomy between what data subjects actually want in terms of use of their data and what the law actually requires. But of course, that's not something that the DPC can take into account. The DPC is obliged to interpret and apply the law as it sees fit. And so because the department has indicated it wasn't going to comply with the, the findings of the DPC, the, the DPC went and ahead and issued an enforcement notice against the department. The department has appealed that enforcement notice as of January 2019, so we have to wait and see what developments will come out of that. <clears throat> I suppose what this um, issue, uh, what, what this issue points out is that there can be fundamental differences of opinion between the DPC and public service bodies as to whether the use of of personal data has a legal basis and whether the obligations of transparency can be, have been complied with. And that makes it very difficult for other public service bodies to know where they stand. Now, there is some guidance out there. In uh, Last year, the, the DPC published, as I mentioned already, a guidance note on uh, data sharing in the public sector. Um, and we will also have this new Data Sharing and Governance Act 2019, which we're going to look at a little bit later on. But it's quite clear from the advice that we are being asked to give on a regular basis that the, there is a lot of confusion and complexities in the area of data sharing by public bodies. And so to discuss these trends and the issues that are currently arising, I'm joined by two partners from our privacy team in Mason, Hayes and Curran, 
uh, Robert McDonough and John Farrell. So I'm going to ask them a series of questions and hopefully we'll be able to shed some more light on it. Thank you. Morning, Robert. Morning, John. Um, Robert, if I can ask you first, what's the first step a public authority needs to take when they're thinking about sharing data? Um, so, thank you, Catherine. Um, so, I think, well, the first thing you need to do in any, really in any data processing or any other arrangement is to know what's happening. So, um, you need to look at the facts. So, what data is being shared? Um, does it include any special categories of data? Does it include any Article 10 data? Who's sharing it? And you need to look at, in that respect, you know, what is the status of the party sharing it? Are they controllers? Are they processors? Are they joint controllers? Um, and look at which way the data flow is going. So is it going from one person to another, or, or vice versa, or is there reciprocal sharing? So you just need to understand, essentially, what's happening. You also need to look at things like, when is the data being shared? So is this something that is happening on a routine basis? Is there a trigger in a given case for it? Is it just an ad hoc data sharing arrangement? Because all these things are going to influence how you look and deal with it. In a practical terms, whenever you're sharing information with a third party, whether they're your service provider or whether they are another controller, there's always going to be a security vulnerability in transferring that data from one party to the other. So it's really important to understand how the data sharing is actually happening, how the information is getting from A to B, um, and to look at whether that is actually an adequate means to ensure appropriate security for it. One of the other things you need to look at as well is, well, is this cross-border? So is data transferring cross-border? Um, is it something that might trigger the data transfer rules under the GDPR? And that's something we're going to see with Brexit um, you know, once the transition period is over, and, and just more generally you know, with, with other people. So, so the first thing you really need to understand is those data flows. You also need to understand the data use. So what's the actual the purpose? You know, what's the objective that's being pursued here? Um, and is the data sharing actually necessary for that purpose? So we, do we need to share all that information? Could we share just some of it? Could we do it in other means? Could we anonymize the data? Could we pseudonymize the data? So you need to start to kind of get under the bonnet a bit and look at it. And then also just to understand what's happening with the data. Is there data matching happening? Is it being combined? Is it being linked? So you really need to kind of get a feel just factually for what's happening. And it's important that you understand all the different types of questions to answer or to ask and get good answers from them or get the business to go and look into them a bit further. Because if you want to advise on a data sharing arrangement, it's important to understand the kind of the factual matrix. And you'll also then want to understand, well, what have we said about data transfers? Because obviously under the GDPR, transparency is a really big thing. So have we told people about this data transfer? Has the recipient told people about this data transfer? Are we doing something different to what we've told them? Or have we said nothing at all? So you need to just really get under the bonnet to understand what's happening. Okay, and so once you've done that, what's the next step after that? Um, well, I think the next step is really when you're kind of moving into the, the legal sphere. So you're looking at, um, is there any special statutory requirements that apply? So is there particular restrictions? For example, is the PPS number involved? Or is there something under your statute that restricts or regulates the way data sharing is supposed to happen? You know, are you under a duty of medical confidentiality? So just look at the wider sphere. Um, obviously, you're going to need to look at the Data Sharing and Governance Act, uh, particularly when it fully comes into effect. From a governance perspective, you're also going to want to start getting people involved. So you'll want to know who's the lead, who's the person who's in charge of this data sharing arrangement. And you want to identify them at the start and make sure there's clear accountability. If you have a data protection officer, you might say, well, look, we need to get the data protection officer involved. Is it right now? Is it a little bit later? But that's something you're going to need to think about. 
if you might be relying on the legitimate interests to do, do a data transfer, well, you might be thinking, well, should we start to prepare a legitimate interest assessment? Um, or is there, is there risks to individuals resulting from this data sharing arrangement? Because if that's the case, we might need to do a data protection impact assessment. Um, and then also, you just need to start thinking about things like the fact that you might need to do an update to your privacy notice or just-in-time notifications or some actual reach out to people. And that's something the business needs to know early about because they're going to need to actually prepare for that. Um, and then things like your Article 30 register. So that's supposed to capture details of your processing that you're doing. So is that something you're going to need to update? So just from a governance perspective, you're just starting to look at who you need to involve, what kind of things you're going to need to do. And then obviously you're kind of moving into the GDPR compliance. So you're going to need to start to, to look at what you need to do to comply with the GDPR, whether it's the data protection principles, the legal basis. And I think that's something we probably touch on a little bit later. And then finally, you also need to think about exit. So what happens when this arrangement stops? Or should you be able to stop this arrangement? So just start to think about what's going to happen at the end of the arrangement. And things like, you know, should the data actually be deleted earlier? You know, it, it, does, does the recipient need to keep it for um, a particular period of time? And after that, could we get them to delete it? Even though the arrangement is ongoing, there might be a future arrangement. So there's just lots of practical and legal things, ultimately, you need to start to, to think about. Okay, thanks, Robert. John, if I could bring you in here, please. That, um, this sounds like all the things that the provider of the data has to think about. Do, does the provider have to think about the responsibilities of the recipient at all? Um, thanks, Catherine. So I suppose, no, look, unfortunately, it's, it's not that simple. Um, you need to be much more involved these days than probably was the case in the, the pre-GDPR times. Um, I guess if we, if we take the easiest scenario first, so where you're appointing a data processor to, to process uh, personal data on your behalf, you obviously need to exercise a, a very significant level of oversight and control. I think everyone is, is fairly clear with that. In terms of controller to controller transfers, which is typically what people mean when we talk about data sharing arrangements, um, I think it's interesting in a few angles. So I suppose to look at the concept of independent data controllers first. Um, so that's where both parties are exercising their, their own level of independent control over the information. Um, the old school view was in that type of scenario, because you were acting independently of the other party, you really didn't need to concern yourself too much with what the other party was doing. And you could kind of step back a little bit. As long as you had your own house in order, um, that was probably good enough. I think GDPR has kind of changed that. Um, and if you, you look at Article 82 in particular, it creates the potential for each data controller to be um, liable for damage as a result of a, a particular data processing activity, unless they can show that they were in no way responsible for the events that caused the damage. Um, I suppose that's a pretty high bar from a, a GDPR perspective. Um, and particularly, aside from the independent controllers piece, when you start talking about joint controllership, and I know Rob will touch on that in, in a few minutes. I suppose the other issue when you, you think about independent controllers and those data sharing arrangements is the scenario where one independent controller will be the one who's collecting the information at the, the sort of point of contact. If they don't have the right processes in place around their own transparency obligations and also around their own legal basis for processing, and then they transfer that information over to another data controller, I guess that's where you could see potential for inheriting some of those issues. And that'll obviously cause some difficulties unless you can sort of remedy those issues as part of your data processing activity. That's always not always the easiest thing to do in practice. 
so I suppose that's kind of led to the, one of the trends we're seeing where organizations are putting in place data sharing agreements. Um, it's really to introduce that level of control and oversight um, into the arrangement and also to try and manage some of the risk and potential liability around it. And John, does it make a difference if the recipient is private sector or public sector? So I suppose generally the answer is no. Um, obviously, once the, the, the Data Sharing Act 2019 fully comes into force, um, there'll be a couple of different considerations uh, to think about, but broadly it doesn't make a huge difference. For the time being, okay. And Robert, uh, John mentioned joint controllerships there. I think this is a concept that causes a lot of confusion. Can you shed any light on this? Um, well, you'd be glad to hear that uh, it'll continue to cause some confusion. Um, so the concept of joint controller is actually something that's been around. It, it was in the directive, um, but it's now, and it's also in the GDPR. So it's when two uh, controllers jointly determine the purposes and the means, uh, or, or the essential means, uh, and that's often referred to as the how of the processing. So you know, how are you doing it, and why are you doing it? Um, so if two controllers come together to jointly determine the how and the why, well, then there will be a joint controller relationship. As I said, it's not new, but it's got increasing prominence. And that's because, well, firstly, the GDPR sets out some specific requirements. So Article 26 of the GDPR um, sets out specific requirements that you have to comply with where there is a joint controller relationship. Also, Article 28 of the GDPR provides that where a processor starts to determine the, the how and the why, well, they will become a joint controller. Um, and, and really, most significantly, there's been three relatively recent decisions of the Court of Justice of the European Union, um, which have found joint controller relationships in circumstances where you just wouldn't have thought it was going to arise. So one of those cases, uh, well, two of them involved Facebook. So, so the first one is a case called, uh, is referred to as fan pages. And this was where um, an independent organization had set up a fan page on Facebook for, you know, to tell people about its company and what it does. And people would visit that page to see what's going on. And Facebook would drop cookies, which was a way to just uh, onto the, the user's devices, which is a way just to find out certain you know, information about the types of visitors and where they're coming from and what they were doing on the page. And so the fan page administrator would say, well, look, I would like to get some reports from you about those, those visitors to, to my fan page. And it would just be an anonymized form. So it would just be statistical information, numbers of users, what parts of the site they're visiting, and so forth. So even though the, the fan page administrator, <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, even though the fan page administrator would never actually get access to any personal data, um, the, the Court of Justice decided that there was a joint control relationship. And that's because the fan page administrator, if there had been no fan page in the first place, Facebook wouldn't have ever collected the information. And they, they also thought there was a commonality of purpose because they were both trying to, they had a kind of common interest in, in, in common economic objective, I guess. And um, so they looked at the, the purpose at a very macro rather than micro level and found there was a joint controller relationship. And then another case con concerning Facebook was just, you know, everyone's seen the like button. And, and the court again held that where you are a provider of a website and you put the like button on your website, well, you're a joint controller with Facebook with respect to the collection and the transmission of that the information collected through the like button to Facebook. And again, this is in circumstances where they didn't actually access any personal data at all, really had very limited impact on, well, pr pretty much zero impact on how and what particular data was collected, other than enabling it to happen in the first place. So just that fact of enabling the data to be collected, kind of similar in some ways to the fan pages decision, 
and that common economic interest. So they're both trying to you know, drive interest in their respective sites um, was found to result in a joint controller relationship. And then thirdly, the Jehovah's Witness case. So you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, not the kind of subject I thought I was gonna see in a privacy decision of the Court of Justice, but, but here is one. Um, and here there was the, the, uh, the, the, the religious community was found to be a joint controller with um, certain kind of local areas because they were found to be organizing and encouraging uh, the collection of information involved by the Jehovah's Witnesses in their door-to-door -door preaching, even though they actually had no real engagement with them in the sense that no personal data ever transferred from the, uh, the local people doing the door-to-door -door preaching to the central um, religious community. But nonetheless, there was found to be this joint controller relationship. So as a result of that, we're seeing joint controllers arising everywhere. And um, you know, you're seeing service providers, what they used to say is they'd say they're a processor. Then the GDPR came along and they're saying, well, well, maybe we use some of that data for our own purposes, or maybe we do a bit of analytics on it, so maybe we should call ourselves a controller. And now they're going, oh God, maybe we're joint controllers. So there's this evolution happening, and, it's, and in data sharing arrangements as well, obviously there's often, you know, at a macro level, can be said to be a common objective. So, so there's real confusion around when there is a joint controllership. And so how would I recognize when there is a joint controllership? How would uh, I know? That is a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, look, it, the law is the same as it always has been. So you need to look at you know, the test for a controller um, and you know, the purposes of determining the how and the means. And you need to look at, you know, are those decisions being made jointly? Um, now, that's easier said than done. The ICO has issued what you might call some light touch guidance around this, and, and they suggest where there is a common objective or, or the same purpose being pursued by the two controllers, well, that's gonna suggest perhaps that there's a joint controller relationship. Or if the two controllers are utilizing the same set of data, so, it, you know, so they're actually accessing the same database, again, that's indicative of joint controllership. Or if they've designed the process around the, the, the use of the data, or there's common information management rules around the use of the data, Again, they've suggested that might be relevant to whether there's a joint controller relationship. Um, European Data Protection Supervisory uh, Body, they, they've also issued some guidance and it touches around on joint controllership. Um, and you know, helpfully and consistent with quite old Article 29 Working Party guidance, they've said, well, look, if you're giving information to a law enforcement body, um, there's two distinct purposes there. So you're, you know, in the, unless you're actually collaborating in, in you know, the investigation or prosecution of an offense, um, you know, you've collected information for one purpose, so it might be CCTV footage. You've collected that for you know, security purposes, now you're giving it to a law enforcement agency because there might have been an offense committed. They suggest that that is not a joint controller relationship because there isn't a commonality of purpose there. Um, you, know, you were collecting information originally for a completely independent purpose. Um, but then they give an example of where there are, um, you know, th there might be two European institutions who have created an IT system uh, to collect and manage information about research projects. And in that case, you know, there's a commonality of purpose. Both parties are involved in the research project. Uh, and they've also both been involved in determining the means, you know, the, the actual technical means of collecting the data. So you know, that suggests, they say, that there is joint controllership. But I think the important thing to appreciate is, one, it's at a macro level, the purpose. You know, so there's kind of quite a high level they look at the purpose. Two, you don't actually have to have access to the personal data to be in a joint controller. Three, the purpose takes primacy over the means. So, you know, even if you have limited involvement in the means, but you're very much involved in determining the purpose, there may be a joint controllership. Um, 
So you know, as a result of this, what we're seeing is people are really revisiting the categorization they've made, particularly because there was just so much work to do when the GDPR came along. Um, you know, people were just trying to get compliance on everything, but now they're starting to focus on little areas. And one area we're seeing a lot is people looking at you know, how they categorize the relationship with service providers, how they categorize the relationship with parties they're sharing information with, um, and looking to make some decisions around that. And I think one of the other things just that we are seeing just in the context of data sharing is there's actually quite a lot of different little things to do. And you know, we're here to provide legal advice, and I like to think we're reassuringly expensive. But, uh, <laughs> but people don't want to keep coming back to us all the time to get legal advice, because it is costly. So what we've been doing with a number of clients is we're starting to help them set up kind of decision matrices or decision trees to enable them to get the information they need to make their own decisions and playbooks and templates so that they can actually you know, do things themselves without having to keep getting legal advice every time. And also by enabling them to have then very good governance and accountability framework in place around that. So that's one of the things, because there's so many different issues arising, that's something that we've seen people doing, particularly with the, the Governance Act as well. Sure, and so if there is a joint controllership, does that mean that public bodies or controllers have to do anything extra? Yes, um, in simple terms. So, so you have to comply with Article 26. So what this requires is that the two joint controllers uh, in a transparent manner allocate responsibility for compliance with the GDPR. So what that means is you might say, well, look, you're responsible for making sure the information is up to date and it's accurate and letting me know if we need to update it. Um, or you're responsible for deleting it, or you're responsible for telling data subjects, or if there's a security incident, you're going to be primarily person, person primarily dealing with a, a security incident. Um, this will normally be done through a joint controller agreement, um, and the essence of that arrangement needs to be provided to data subjects. So you need to take a step to actively communicate this to data subjects, so that'll often be done through a privacy notice or some other means, and it's only the essence of the arrangement, not the entirety of it. So you don't necessarily need to go into the granular details. And normally, one of the parties will be appointed as a primary point of contact for data subjects to exercise their rights. So um, there might be one, or there might be two joint controllers, there could be 50. Um, but data subjects know if they get in touch with one of those particular controllers, they will manage and deal with the data subject uh, request. But what's important to appreciate is the data subject can actually exercise the right against any of the joint controllers. So, you know, uh, whilst there, you know, you're supposed, you, it's, it's good practice to put in place a single point of contact and it makes practical sense, they can exercise the rights against any of you, in which case, you know, you need to deal with that. Okay. You mentioned a legal basis there, Robert. I mean, I, I wonder if that's something I could comment on for a moment, because it's a question that comes up a lot for public sector bodies. What legal basis can I rely on to carry out this particular function? So there's, there's three that come up most commonly, or two that come up most commonly, and one that I want to comment on a little bit. So there's obviously compliance with the legal obligation, and, and, and that's quite clear and quite straightforward. If you're an organization that's the subject of an order that's directed to you, such as an order for discovery, a production summons, any of those types of documents that compel you to provide personal data, that's compliance with the legal obligation, and that's usually reasonably clear-cut. What is slightly less clear-cut, but is the one which is most commonly relied upon by public sector bodies, is Article 6.1e. And that provides that, um, the public, uh, that data can be shared 
where it's necessary in the performance of the functions of the public authority, so in the public interest or necessary um, in, in the performance of a task carried out under official authority. Just a, a couple of comments on that. So the, the DPC in December 2019 issued a guidance note on legal bases for processing personal data. Now it is not specific to the public sector. It apply, it's relevant to all types of controllers. We have put a copy of the note in the resources on Slido. But the, the document does comment on uh, public sector bodies and the various um, legal bases which may be relevant to them and it, it does comment on article 61e and says that controllers relying on this legal basis need to ensure that the processing of the personal data is actually necessary in order to carry out the task in the public interest or in the exercise of public authority. And this is something we've seen public authorities struggling with a little bit, this question of is this data sharing necessary for the performance of my tasks? And the, the DPC's note says, uh, it, you know, the extent of precisely what is necessary to carry out the task in the public interest or in the exercise of official authority will ultimately depend on the circumstances of the case. Now, the guidance note also uh, refers to the legitimate interest ground for processing. And I know a lot of you will be saying, why is she talking about legitimate interests? Doesn't the GDPR say that public authorities cannot rely on legitimate interests um, to, carry, to, to process personal data? And that, that's correct, but it's important to remember what the, Act, what the GDPR actually says. It says that it, it restricts public authorities from relying on the legal basis of legitimate interests if they are processing personal data in the performance of their tasks. But the DPC's guidance note goes on to say that there are other tasks of the public authority which would not be necessary for the performance of its, ta its tasks, but which are perhaps more perhaps internally related. The, the note refers to things like office management and financial accountability, for example. And the DPC um, thinks that it is possible for the public authorities to rely on legitimate interests in carrying out those types of tasks. So it might be interesting just to look at that section. You might, as a public authority, you might just gloss straight over the legitimate interest section, but there is a paragraph in that part of the guidance note which is quite relevant to public authorities. So, John, I'd, I'd like to bring you back in because as well as looking at legal basis, what, does, what other things do public authorities need to think about? Yeah, so I, I suppose the, the, the guidance note that, that Catherine mentioned is actually really interesting um, from a few different angles for, for public sector bodies. And I, I would encourage you to, to have a quick look through the, the relevant sections if, if you get a chance. Um, I suppose just specifically to turn to Article 5 of the GDPR, which is one of the, the real pillar pillars of uh, data protection law, where it sets out the key principles. Um, I suppose to recap on those, there are lawfulness, fairness, and transparency, purpose limitation, data minimization, accuracy, storage limitation, security, and then that overarching principle of accountability. Um, and I guess the, the guidance note provides a really helpful checklist where, uh, for public sector bodies to try and apply those principles in, in practice. Um, and I, I won't go through all the, the things it sets out in the checklist, but just to give you a flavor of some of them, it says that you should identify what the arrangement is meant to achieve. You should consider whether um, the objective can be achieved without actually sharing any personal data or by sharing 
anonymized personal data. So really going back to um, that data minimization point I mentioned earlier. You also need to consider whether the minimum amount of personal information is being shared to achieve the, the stated purpose. Um, you need to consider what risks might arise as a result of the data sharing. You also need to consider when and how often the, the data will be shared. And you need to consider whether a, a data protection impact assessment is actually required. So I suppose there's a lot of really helpful stuff there and I think the expectation of the, the regulator will be that um, when you're entering into data sharing arrangements as a public body, you should con give consideration to this checklist. Um, so I suppose that's going back to that principle of accountability and showing that you've, you've considered all these points. But I think additionally, it's also really useful because it sort of focuses your mind on those key principles of data protection law and makes you examine them um, and, and sort of put down what your position is in a in a sort of a fairly comprehensive manner. Thanks, John. Robert, uh, John mentioned data protection impact assessments. In what circumstances do public authorities need to consider those? Um, well, I suppose the, the GDPR requires a data protection impact assessment to be undertaken where the processing uh, presents high risks to the rights and freedoms of data subjects. So um, there is some guidance around you know, what does that actually mean in practice. Um, so the DPC has issued a list of when it thinks that there is, uh, where, where it's mandatory to do a, a data protection impact assessment, some guidance from the European Data Protection Board. The ICO has also issued its, uh, its own guidance, and, and, and each of the supervisory authorities across the member states have their own respective lists for, for their countries. But in the context of data sharing, one of the things that the DPC mentions is where there is combining or linking of data, uh, where it's used for you know, analysis or profiling of individuals um, the ICO talks about data matching, something that can happen in data sharing, uh, and, and both of them talk about invisible processing. So this might be where one of the parties collects the information and they give it to, to another controller, um, but individuals don't know anything about it. So that's this kind of thing they think is a high risk. Um, and the, the ICO gives another example, which is um, where the, the nature of the data is that where there's a breach that could cause particular harm. So that might be where you know, sharing of information in relation to a whistleblower or the sharing of, of social care data, where it's, you know, it really is quite sensitive and there could be particular harm. So really what you need to do is you need to look at what the risks are. You know, other ways where there could be risks is if by nature of the data sharing in place, it might be very difficult to actually properly implement um, data subject rights when they're exercised. Or, you know, so there's other different things you need to think about, but you just need to step back and have a think and apply your mind to whether there is one and best practice would be then to document your conclusion if there isn't one. That's not always done in practice, but certainly from an accountability perspective, it's always good to document your, your justification for particular decisions. Okay, thanks. Before we move on to the 2019 Act, John, is there an example of all of this in practice that we've been discussing? Yeah, so um, I suppose despite what most of the, the population outside of the, the privacy lawyers would have hoped, um, data protection law and the, the compliance didn't disappear after GDPR came in, we still need to look at it. And I suppose there's been a real focus over the last six to nine months um, around uh, going back and, and looking at some of the, the things that were put in place when GDPR came in. And that's not just on the, the public sector side, but also on, on the private sector side. And I think, 
you know, in the lead up to GDPR, and you know, we probably all remember it, um, there was a real rush towards getting documents in place, um, and there was data protection or data processing agreements flying back and forth, um, you know, almost on a, on a daily basis. And I think you know, everyone was working towards a set deadline. And I think it's, it's probably fair to say that the, the level of analysis of um, arrangements, and particularly the more complex data sharing arrangements, probably wasn't really considered in, in as much deal, detail as it should have been. And probably some of these relationships were, were wrongly categorized at the time. Um, so really over the last six months or so, there's been a much more detailed analysis going back and looking at particularly those more complex arrangements and saying, well, look, actually, what is happening here? What type of relationship is this? Is this really a, a data processor uh, arrangement? Is it an independent controller relationship? Is it a joint controller relationship? We also have that case law uh, that, that Robert mentioned earlier on. So it's that real drive towards actual analysis and compliance, and not just the kind of box ticking exercise that GDPR kind of became a little bit uh, in, in the lead up to its implementation. So to go back on you know, what a, what's myself and Robert doing on a, a kind of a daily basis, and Robert touched on this earlier on, working with a lot of public sector clients to, to really try and analyze those data sharing arrangements that are there, and, and again, particularly the more complex ones, and sort of drawing out of that um, decision trees, um, playbook, so it's a kind of a, a sort of an auditing process um, in a sense, and I guess that sort of drives your compliance around those existing arrangements and, and you're able to fix anything that may have been overlooked uh, in the lead up to GDPR, but it also sets a, a sort of a, a cohesive and I guess comprehensive um, framework for, for any future arrangements that you enter into. And I guess more importantly, it creates that sort of documented and defensible position um, if it's something that's ever queried by a regulator or your analysis around the, the type of data sharing is actually questioned. Um, and I suppose then to lead on to that analysis around um, playbooks and, and decision trees, putting in place template agreements. So, you know, as, as was mentioned earlier on, GDPR doesn't specifically require you need to have uh, written agreements in place. It, it talks about having that arrangement for joint controller scenarios, but independent controllers, there, there's no obligation to have an agreement. But there's a real trend towards actually going and putting in place those agreements, pretty much for the, the reasons I mentioned earlier on, managing risk, liability, and, and introducing that level of, of, of oversight over the, the whole arrangement. Thanks, John. Uh, now, in March 2019, the President signed the Data Sharing and Governance Act which proclaims in its long title to be an act to provide for the regulation of sharing of information, including personal data between public bodies. So now we get to have the big reveal of our Slido results. Hopefully you've all voted and we get to see how much people know about the Data Sharing and Governance Act. And Catherine is just getting it ready. Can't I'm wait, nervous. we're nervous. No pressure, Catherine. <laughs> Just while we're waiting for Catherine to, to bring that up, do you think this act is going to resolve a lot of these issues, Robert, that we've just discussed? Um, I think the answer to that is yes and no. Like, you know, it, it's oh, obviously, oh, here we go. Sorry to interrupt, there we go. I know something about the act, 57%. I know nothing at all about the act, 40%. 
I know a lot about the Act, 3%. Will that person please put up their hand and come <laughs> up here? Because <laughs> I have some questions. <laughs> uh, that is really interesting. Yeah, so a lot of people, the majority of people have heard about it, um, but there's still a significant number of people that have not heard about it. And I, that would be, have been our general perception as well, I think. So thank you very much, Catherine. And Robert, sorry to interrupt. Um, yeah, well, I think, look, the, the Data Sharing and Governance Act, it's laudable in its objective, which is to put in place good governance around data sharing within the public sector and to uh, provide and ensure that it's done properly. Um, but it's just very cumbersome. Um, so you know, if there's no specific provision in Irish or European law that allows for or that provides for you know, transfers between two public bodies, well, then you need to comply with a whole host of obligations set out in the Act. And you know, a lot of them really are, are quite unworkable. Data sharing in that context is interpreted, you know, I think correctly, but, but it, it gives some clarity to say that where you have one system held by another public body and a change in that system results in change in information in a system held by another public body, well, that is data sharing. And I think that's correct, but just, it's just something to be conscious of. You know, automatic updates to information can fall within the Data Sharing and Governance Act. I think, you know, what's the good thing about the Act? I think what I'd say the good thing about the Act is pretty much all of it is not in operation yet. <laughs> because the bad thing about it, as I said, is that it really is quite cumbersome. And I, and I actually don't think, I think a lot of it may never come into force for that reason. I think some of it just goes too far and is just unworkable in practice. Um, but, but I suppose it remains to be seen. Yeah, that's, um, well, just on the, the, the sections that are in force, one of the resources that we've prepared, we don't have it available today, but we will circulate it after the event, is a little cheat sheet about which provisions of the 2019 Act have, are currently uh, commenced and which are not. And as Robert said, the majority are not commenced at the moment, but they can be commenced at the stroke of a pen once we ultimately get some ministers to sign SIs, which may be some time yet. Um, just, so, just want to, to yes, say there, Captain. Like, whilst a lot of it isn't in operation, um, the risk is that it could become into operation. And so, what people are doing now is they are looking at some of the provisions that are kind of more easy wins, um, to see well what can they do to at least be compliant with them, so that if they, it does come into 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 play, they don't need to revisit their data sharing agreements, or they have you know certain documentation in place. They're not going the whole hog because, as I said, some of the stuff just goes quite far. But, but they are looking to future-proof uh, to a degree. Yeah, we might, we might come back to the future-proofing, but just to pick up on a couple of the, the points you've made about there being some very unusual provisions in the Act, and, and some of you may have looked at these already, but just to, to draw them out for those that you have not. That have not. Um, so that the, the Act makes provision for, for data sharing agreements between public sector bodies, and John is going to talk about those in a little bit more detail. But one of the requirements in relation to these data sharing agreements is that the data protection officer of each of the parties that's going to enter into the proposed agreement prior to the parties entering into the agreement is going to have to prepare a statement saying that the DPO has reviewed the proposed agreement, uh, that the DPO is satisfied that compliance with the agreement will not result in a contravention of data protection law by the parties to the agreement, and that the agreement is in compliance with Article 5 of the GDPR. So that's a lot of things for the DPO to, to satisfy him or herself about, and I'm not sure how many DPOs will be comfortable giving that kind of statement. 
The second um, unusual provision is that the lead agency to the data sharing agreement, once the data sharing agreement has been uh, signed, or also if there is a party that accedes to the agreement or if a party withdraws from the agreement, the, the lead agency in the agreement must inform the, the relevant minister and the minister then within 10 days has to lay a copy of the agreement or the documents relating to the withdrawal or the accession before the houses of the Oireachtas. So again, uh, a lot of transparency around the content of the arrangement, but perhaps is this going too far that it goes before the houses of the Oireachtas? I don't know what you think. The Act also applies, it, it goes further than GDPR in that the Act also applies to data relating to deceased persons. So I know a lot of organisations um, will deal uh, perhaps with data of deceased persons, maybe if you're in the healthcare sector or social welfare, things like that, and data protection law did not apply to deceased persons. This Act also applies to data relating to deceased persons. And then finally, there's a part of the Act which deals with business information and creating things called business identifiers and, and create certain um, requirements around business information. So it's important to note that the 2019 Act doesn't just deal with personal data, it goes much further than that. So leaving aside those unusual features, John, what does the Act actually do? Yeah, so I suppose the, the key part of the Act really is Section 13, which is the provision that deals with the requirements around data sharing. And I suppose just before I turn to Section 13, um, just to, to reiterate a couple of points, most of this Act is not commenced yet. Um, we don't know when it will be commenced. But because it's already enacted, it, it can be commenced, as, as Catherine mentioned earlier on, with the, the stroke of a pen. Um, there are a couple of pieces that are commenced, so around the operation of the public sector pension and some of that business information sharing pieces that, that Catherine mentioned, but really they are sort of ancillary pieces. Um, the, the main bulk of it around the, the data sharing uh, is, is not yet commenced. It's also worth noting that once the act is commenced, it'll disapply section 38 of the Data Protection Act 2018, um, and this is sort of, sets out the, the, the framework and the provisions around how the operation of the, the, the processing of a, a task carried out in the public interest operates. And really, I think the goal behind this is it wants all public sector data sharing arrangements to be funneled through the provisions of the Act. Um, so it, it wants anything that falls outside of the Act to be really tightly reined in. Um, everything else should come within the funnel of, of the requirements of the Act. So. It, then I guess turn into section 13 itself. So it states that public sector data sharing uh, can occur where it's for the, the purpose of performance of a function of either party and it meets one of seven or eight criteria that are set out in section uh, 13. So these criteria include things like verifying the identity of a person uh, that either party is supplying a service to for the purpose of correcting erroneous information held by either party and to facilitate the administration, supervision and control of a service which is delivered by one of the parties. Another interesting feature of section 13 is it, it sort of departs from what we were mentioning in the, the GDPR around whether you need to have a written agreement in place in these kind of controller to controller or data sharing arrangements. So to recap again on GDPR, independent controllers, no need for any written agreement. Joint controllers, it's that arrangements with, with 
sets out the, the respective roles and responsibilities of the parties, but it doesn't have to be necessarily in agreement. The Data Sharing Act says that these data sharing arrangements do need to be underpinned by a written agreement, um, which will set out roles and responsibilities. And the, the detail of what needs to go into that act, there's a lot in it, and we'll, we'll come to that in, in a few minutes. Um, so I suppose it's, it's much more geared towards driving that level of compliance and, and oversight. That's interesting you should mention that, John, because I, I think in the commentary around the time this Act was enacted, there was a lot of discussion about those governance and procedural requirements. Can you talk us through those? Yeah, so and I think Robert touched on this as well. The Data Sharing Act is, is quite prescriptive in what needs to be done, both from the perspective of actually putting in place uh, a data sharing agreement in the first instance, and then, so, then also ongoing compliance and, and obligation once the agreement's actually put in place. And one interesting element of it is that it requires the parties to designate a lead agency. So probably a lot of uh, similar conversations happen around Kildare Street if you're walking back to the office that way. But thankfully, the Act actually sets out some criteria of how you determine what a lead agency is. Um, and that lead agency is going to be the, the party that's responsible for a lot of the day-to-day the -day administration and, and, and governance around particular issues. Um, often in, in data sharing agreements, as, as Robert mentioned earlier on, you kind of automatically do this because you assign a responsibility for, for one party to manage data subject uh, requests, etc. But the Act, the Act will now require it once it comes into force. In terms of the actual administrative pieces itself, most of these are set out in part nine of the Act. Um, so once you have the, the draft data sharing uh, agreement prepared, it needs to go out to public consultation. Um, and that can obviously drive submissions and commentary. The next step is it gets submitted to what will be a newly established data governance board. And the data governance board can require amendments uh, to the agreement. And once you kind of go through that process, you're into getting the agreement finalized and signed. And then once it's signed, to, to go back to what Catherine mentioned, it needs to get sent to the relevant minister and it's laid before the houses of the Oireachtas. And it's not really just the end of the story once you actually get the agreement in place. Uh, there's requirements to have regular reviews uh, by the parties of the, the agreement and the data sharing arrangement. And if something's changed or if the parties decide that uh, an amendment is needed to the act, or sorry, to the agreement, that amendment itself needs to go back through the same process, so the public consultation, submission to the Data Governance Board. So it, that's really what we, we mean when we say it's a bit cumbersome. Um, it's not that easy to amend uh, these agreements once they're in force. And are you seeing any activity at the moment, John, uh, by public authorities in terms of future proofing? So if this act, if and when this act does come into full operation? Yeah, so I suppose um, it, it's a really good point, and we, we are. Um, I think tied to what we were mentioning earlier on around the much greater push towards analyzing those complex arrangements and, and trying to underpin those with data sharing agreements, I guess one of the key questions that we get asked is, should we start incorporating parts of the Act now? Um, and I think there, there's a lot of wisdom to that. Um, as, as Robert mentioned, there's definitely some easy wins, um, things you would be considering anyway that you'd, you'd want to put in place. Um, I suppose the, the first easy win is actually putting in place a, a, an agreement in the first place and not a, 
a protocol or some sort of more relaxed arrangement. Um, so I think that, that definitely helps. And I think also looking at some of the requirements of Section 19 and what it actually says and, and start trying to incorporate those into the agreement itself. And I think not only will that help if uh, the, the act is commenced, but it also helps you from just a general account accountability perspective under GDPR because it forces you to consider a lot of those points, like the, the checklist of in the, the commissioner's guidance note around looking at the principles around Article 5, et cetera. Now, Robert, data sharing agreements are, of course, not unique under the 2019 Act. They exist already. What sort of things would you normally expect to see in a data sharing agreement? Um, well, I think that, that really depends on the nature of the arrangement. So to, when I talk about data sharing arrangements and, and the documentation put in place, I tend to differentiate between what I call a data sharing protocol or a data sharing agreement. So a data sharing protocol is it's a much lighter touch. It doesn't really have heavy legal provisions. Um, it's just kind of some of the basic stuff, putting a little bit of governance around it. And then a data sharing agreement is just going to be a little bit more legal and, and a bit more specific. So I suppose, you know, so the approach there is going to depend on the client and, and what they really want to do. Um, but the kind of things that you'd see in a data sharing agreement, well, the first thing is, the, you know, who are the parties? Um, which, which way is the data flowing? What data is flowing? What is the status of the parties? Are they controllers? Are they joint controllers? Um, it's best practice, not always done, to set out what the legal basis for the data transfer is. Um, in all cases, I think it's really good practice to set out the means of sharing the data. Um, and that's because, as I mentioned earlier, that's where the, the vulnerability in data sharing is. It's getting information from A to B. So having you know, given proper consideration and documented and requiring the data sharing to happen in a particular way which you're comfortable is secure is, is something I think is really important. Um, and then you can get into a little bit more sophisticated agreements where they start to talk about the application of the principles. They might say that, uh, you know, you have to delete data at a certain point in time. Might say if, you, if, you, if, if we give you information that you don't need, you'll, you'll delete it or return it to us. Um, there's, there's also always going to be a statement of what the purpose is. Um, and then how you deal with that can vary. So sometimes it might say you can only use it for that purpose. Or it might say you can only use it for that purpose and any purpose that's not incompatible with it. Or any purpose that's permitted by law. So there's kind of different approaches you see around the purpose. And again, it depends on how you want to deal, deal with the arrangement. So particularly where we would often see with service providers. So if it's a data sharing agreement with a service provider who's positioned itself as a controller, it tends to be quite light touch. So there might be, you know, there might be a purpose restriction, but everything else is relatively light touch, where it's a more engaged data sharing agreement between two independent controllers in the, in the normal sense there can be a little bit more. But it really just depends on the, on the client's position. And, and the reason the service provider ones are light touch is because you know, it's just a practical thing. You have so many service providers, um, and you don't want to have to get into big negotiations. It's, it's not necessarily best practice, but it's, it's workable practice. Um, some of the other things then that you might see is cooperation obligations, what happens on termination, um, having a lead in each organization who's, you know, who's responsible in the point of contact, and having you know, periodic review requirements. So the parties will sit down and say, look, is this still what we're doing? Do we need to change what we're doing? And is the documentation reflective of it? Um, and, and, and a good thing where there is, you know, where there's supposed to be controls around sharing of information, often there will be a process for that. So you know, one party might have to submit a particular form saying, I need the information. This is why I need it. And I confirm it's for that valid purpose. The other party will then sign off on that, and that's the trigger for people in, in their organization to disclose the information to the other one. So there can be kind of 
governance protocols. And then you get into kind of quite legal things. So, you know, is there going to be warranties, indemnities? Are they going to be reciprocal? Um, is there caps on liability, reservation of intellectual property rights? Um, so sometimes you get into those, not always. Um, so, so there's quite a lot in there. You can also have things like audit rights um, and, and a variety of other things. And of course, if, if it's a joint controller situation, you might have something more, is that right? Yeah, well, it goes back to Article 26. So if it's a joint controller arrangement, well, you actually have to, uh, to allocate responsibility for compliance with the different aspects of the GDPR between the parties. So it'll get quite specific then. So it might say who's responsible for notifying data subjects. It might say who's responsible for notifying a, um, the supervisory authority in the event of a breach who's responsible for reviewing the accuracy of the information. So there's, there's a variety of different things that it's going to set out around allocation of responsibilities. It's also going to say who's the primary point of contact for data subjects. Um, and you know, it'll also, you know, in addition to saying who, you'll often see this thing around security incidents. And it can be a point of contention, because letting one party to run with notifications to the supervisory authority or notifications to data subjects can make the other party a bit nervous. So sometimes it gets a bit more sophisticated in terms of how the parties will jointly engage with each other on that. Um, but, but one of the things you need to be conscious of is these all sound like good things to put in any data sharing agreement. But if you do, you might be turning what is two independent controllers into joint controllers because you start to, where, because you start to move from a situation where actually you might have had different purposes and, you know, and determined the means independently to very much starting to work together on all the aspects of how that data is used. Um, and one example of that in practice um, is with Uber. So Uber had a data breach, and the CNIL, which is the French supervisory authority, found that Uber Inc. and the US company and its subsidiary in, in Holland were joint controllers. And one of the factors that the CNIL said was indicative of this joint controller relationship was the fact that Uber Inc. was the person primarily handling um, the security incident, which it said was indicative of it being you know, a controller with respect to the data rather than just a mere processor uh, of the, the Dutch subsidiary. And also the fact that it was issuing guidelines uh, around data protection practice, good practice to employees of, of the Dutch subsidiary and training to them. So getting very much involved in just application of data protection law. So um, you just always need to be a little bit careful around that. And, and then the other thing you're obviously going to have to do is you need to make the essence of the arrangement available to data subjects. So you're going to need to say that in your data protection notice or, or in some other means so that it's available in a transparent way. Okay, but that sounds like a lot to cover, but John, the 2019 Act goes even further than that in some respects. Yeah, so I suppose the, the, the real requirement in the Data Sharing Act is set out in section 19, and that sets out different things that you need to include in uh, data sharing agreements once the Act is commenced. There's a lot of stuff in there. There's around 18 or 20 different things you need to put into your um, into your agreement. A lot of some of those will will overlap or, or cover pieces that that Robert mentioned. But the the roles and responsibilities piece that's sort of largely dealt with by the concept of the lead agency, or, or to an extent will be dealt with by the lead agency. So aside from the roles and responsibilities, there's still another. Uh, 17 or 18 things there. So it sets out sort of obvious things need to be included. So things like the identity of the parties, um, what information is going to be disclosed, and whether it will be disclosed on a, a one-off basis or an ongoing basis, 
what's the purpose of the data sharing and what's the function of the body. Um, what's the, the legal basis, going back to something Catherine mentioned at, at the start, and is there go, what's the legal basis of any further processing? Um, so looking at the, the actual act of data sharing itself and then anything that will be done after that. Is the disclosure going to affect um, individual data subjects or is it capturing groups of uh, data subjects? How is the information going to be processed after it's disclosed? If there's a data protection impact assessment carried out, you need to include a summary of that assessment. So that's something you really wouldn't see at the moment in any sort of control, joint controller agreements or anything like that. Um, it also focuses your mind around the application of, of the, the, the legal basis because it, it forces you to carry out an analysis of the extent to which the disclosure is necessary for the performance of the function of the body and the extent to which uh, any safeguards you've introduced are proportionate in the context of that performance. Uh, you also need to set out any restrictions that are going to be put in place uh, after the processing is finished. Okay, thanks, John. Um, we're shortly coming to a, a close. I suppose I want to draw back from the 2019 Act for a minute and uh, talk just about a, a little uh, different area. So we're, all of what we've been talking about so far is all about voluntary data sharing between different organisations. Um, I just want to touch on, on law enforcement just for a moment. And this is a, a complex area and something we could spend quite a bit of time on. But I suppose just one uh, point which keeps cropping up and I thought it would be worth mentioning it. Um, we are seeing a lot of requests from law enforcement agencies the Angarda Siakana is just one example, there are others, um, looking for access to personal data held by public sector bodies. And very often, these requests will refer to Section 41B of the Data Protection Act 2018. And just to remind you what that says, it says, without prejudice to the processing of personal data for a purpose other than the purpose for which it was collected, which is lawful under the Data Protection Regulation, processing of personal data and special categories of personal data for a purpose other than for which the purpose was uh, the data was collected shall be lawful to the extent that such processing is necessary or proportionate for the purposes of preventing detecting investigating or prosecuting criminal offenses now it's important to remember that section 41b does not compel the production of the personal data concerned. It is in effect a request for the voluntary sharing of personal data with the investigating authority. And there's nothing wrong with voluntary data sharing subject to all of the things we've, we've talked about already, but it's important to remember that for many public authorities, data protection law is not the only information law restriction that you need to think about. So for very many public authorities, if you look at your governing legislation, there will be a provision in that legislation which talks about confidential information and talks about the requirements to, for that public authority to keep certain information confidential. And then taking that a step further, if you are a healthcare institution um, and you have registered medical practitioners who are your employees, or if indeed you are yourself a registered medical practitioner, you will be subject to a medical duty of confidence in relation to those records. And that can only be overridden in very limited circumstances, one of which is a compelled request for disclosure. It's not overridden by a voluntary request for disclosure. So that's just to draw that to your attention because it's something that comes up quite a lot for, for us. 
I would say that disclosure of personal data in law enforcement contexts is a really complex one, and I don't want to, um, we're not going to cover it all today, but just to mention that, that particular point. So, just to conclude, I want to thank John and Robert for answering all of my questions. Um, just to refer to some key takeaways this morning, um, we, I think we've, we've looked at the importance of public sector bodies considering the data sharing arrangements that they have in place, the data sharing that they're doing at the moment, looking at the legal basis that they have for that. Um, bearing in mind their, their um, obligations of accountability and good governance. Start looking at the 2019 Act, start looking at the requirements that it is, uh, is going to impose on you down the line. How are you going to fulfill those requirements? Don't forget to update your Article 30 registers in relation to data sharing. And then just particularly in relation to joint controllerships to consider the guidance from the DPC on transparency and the case law that we've mentioned this morning. It remains for me to thank John and Robert again for their wonderful contributions and to thank you all very much for attending this morning and for your interest. Thank you. Thank you.